Please keep your Bibles where Paul just read. John 6, 52 through 59, that's going to be our text for this morning. Uh, this section that we're looking at today, this portion of, of 6, chapter 6, it is the final part of the synagogue discourse or the sermon where Jesus admonishes a hungry crowd to seek Him for spiritual nourishment, you know, to satisfy their souls rather than physical nourishment, because that's ultimately what the crowd was wanting from Him. They'd been fed by Him before with the loaves and fish. They come again for that, and Jesus wants to feed them spiritually. And so the whole discourse is kind of targeted at that idea. Last week, we looked at, uh, we wrapped up with verse 51, where Jesus boldly declared that the bread that brings spiritual life and, and spiritual nourishment to the world, to every tribe and tongue, is His own flesh. It is He that brings spiritual life and spiritual nourishment into the world for, for people from literally every tribe and tongue. He is... He is our salvation. He is our spiritual nourishment. And that's ultimately the point that he makes in in verse 51, and really the entire synagogue discourse. But 51 is where we left off after he makes that statement about giving his flesh, which is the bread that satisfies. This morning we are going to look at the crowd's reaction to that statement. And we're going to look at Jesus' final example that he gives them. He's been using metaphors and We're going to look at that and then kind of wrap up this section. And then, of course, we'll have another week in the chapter where we look at the ultimate response of the crowd. Uh, Not these little in-between responses to what he's saying, but how they totally respond at the end of the message. So let's pray before we get to work. Father, we humbly acknowledge your beauty, your awesomeness, your power. You are glorious. You are infinitely holy and perfect in every way, and you are loving and you are merciful. Lord, we confess to you that we are none of those things. Not by nature we aren't. We can become loving and merciful in these things only in Christ, but by nature we are none of those things. We don't even have an ounce of holiness. Uh, We confess to you that we are sinners in need of your saving grace and in need of your sanctifying grace. We thank you that you sent Jesus to bring those things to us, to nourish us, to save and nourish us, to satisfy our souls in a way that that nothing else and no one else can do. And we just petition you now, we ask that you would open our minds and our hearts, our ears to the truth, that we would see the truth in this Scripture, which is probably one of the most misinterpreted, wrongly applied passages in the whole Bible, and we pray that that would not occur here, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we would not just grasp, not just hear and grasp what it is that Jesus said and meant, but that we would understand it clearly and and live in the truth of it, that we would apply it and that we would proclaim it. So we give you this time, Lord. Be glorified in this place. May your spirit move in power. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to pick it up in verse 52. You ready to go? 
verse 52. Here is how the Jews in the room responded. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus had just talked about how he's the bread and how he's going to give his flesh. And and now they're immediately disputing among themselves, saying, how is this, how can he do this? What what is he trying to say here? And they're disputing and arguing. And that word disputed in English translates in the Greek as makama. And it means to clash severely. So you get the idea that there's there's a clashing that's happening here. And this, this, this word is used frequently to describe intense verbal, verbal arguments and even physical combat in a military sense. So makamai has a broad range of meaning, but it can mean military conflict, literal hand-to-hand fighting and combat and violence. It can, it can have to do with verbal arguments. We see a variation of this word in Jude 1.9 where we read about how the archangel Michael disputed with the devil over the body of Moses. There's, there's makamah that takes place there between this archangel and the really the arch-fallen angel, Satan himself. Here, the word does not carry with it a violent connotation. It does not denote violence. So what we're looking at here is more of a heated argument, a very intense, heated verbal conflict, and it erupted among the Jews, which refers to the Jewish people in general, not just the religious leaders, which is the typical translation of Jews in John's gospel, but it's really the Jews that are in the room. I'm sure there were some Gentiles in there, some Greeks, but for the most part, this is a Jewish audience, and this heated argument erupts among the Jewish people that are there. And we must understand that they were not arguing against each other like in a typical argument, right, where two people go toe-to-toe and they're verbally arguing with one another. That's not, these people were not arguing against each other. They were arguing with each other over the absurdity of Jesus' claims. They were saying, like, can you believe the audacity of this guy? Well, no, Fred, I can't believe it. This is insane. I can't believe he would say that. I don't know if anyone was named Fred. But you know what I'm saying. They're, they're, can you believe he said this? No, I can't believe he said it. And they're arguing in that way. They're not fighting each other over the subject. They're arguing together against what Jesus proclaimed. The total absurdity of his claims, the idea of eating his flesh, I can't believe he said this. I can't believe it either. This is intense. This is incredible. What is he doing? That's the kind of argument that's happening, not against each other, but with one another over the absurdity of Jesus' claims. They said this, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And they argued that among themselves. I want you to notice their contempt. They called Jesus this man which is a term of derision. It's a derogatory title. Can you believe this man? How can this man, this guy right here, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, right before Jesus preached the synagogue discourse, they called him rabbi, which means high teacher. Look at verse 25. Rabbi, when did you get here? 
Rabbi and this man are two completely different titles. Jesus went from rabbi, high teacher, that's how rabbi translates here, high teacher, he went from high teacher, rabbi, to this man, highly despised, in one sermon. I know what that feels like. I'm not trying to say I'm like Jesus, I'm just saying I've preached a few sermons where people went from, I really liked him, past tense. And I'm like, I almost liked you. Literally one sermon. The guy, these guys have been following him around for over a year. He preaches one sermon. He, has, he bears the title of rabbi, which is a high teacher. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, a, uh, it's a, a title of respect. He goes from that to this guy. Can you believe this guy? What a jabroni, you know? Term of derision. He's not respected here. This is what happened. That just went from one to the other. Now, if you kind of look around in John's Gospel in the, in the ESV translation, I'm not sure about the other translations, but if you look at the ESV, you will notice that the word rabbi appears two more times. And in both instances, it is used by his own disciples, you know, the twelve, those who were closest to him. So after the synagogue discourse, Jesus was no longer referred to as rabbi by the Jewish people as a whole. What I'm telling you is that the synagogue discourse is a massive turning point in the ministry of Jesus, where the Jews no longer revered or respected Him in any kind of sense. There was a handful of them, and a few got saved later, but for the most part, the Jewish people, that's it. He's not a rabbi. He's this man. In fact, it's even worse They called him demon-possessed in John 7, verse 20, chapter 8, verse 52, and chapter 10, verse 20. Demon-possessed. I think that's a a little worse than this man. They called him deceiver in John 7, verse 47. They called him a Samaritan. Who were the most despised people by by the Jewish people, by the Jews? The Samaritans. They called him a Samaritan in John 8, 48. You Samaritan! And then they also called him a blasphemer, one who speaks against God himself in John 10, verse 33. So you can see from the synagogue discourse on, from this message that we've been looking at, total turning point with the Jewish people. This guy isn't our rabbi. This guy is this man, a blasphemer, a deceiver. Their attitude completely changed. Now, why did the Jews dispute over Jesus' teaching here at this point in his message? Some say it's because they thought he was promoting cannibalism. Right? You know, if he's telling people to eat his flesh, it, if it walks like a duck, it looks like a duck, right? It sounds like cannibalism. Some people say, some scholars or biblical theologians, commentators say, well, it's because they thought he was promoting cannibalism. That's the most ridiculous idea I've ever heard. Totally disagree. Jesus was both Jewish and under the law of Moses, which prohibited cannibalism. Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that cannibalism was, was, was a subject that you stayed away from. It wasn't something that you promoted or even played around with. Jesus understood that, and the Jewish people understood that. They would not have interpreted His words as cannibalism. You need to remember, and I'll tell you why Jesus wasn't referring to cannibalism. 
I mean, as our Savior, He, he came to, to obey and fulfill the Mosaic law, not disobey or disregard it. And if He'd been promoting cannibalism, some form of cannibalism, He'd violate the Mosaic law, wouldn't even be qualified to be our Savior. So the people here were disputing not over the idea of cannibalism. It was something else. And I've said it in previous sermons, or at least one previous sermon, Jesus' testimony did not align with the Jewish idea of Messiah. That's the issue. It's not just about eating flesh or anything. Jesus' message has been, I'm your only hope. I'm the bread of life, only I can give you life. That's been his message in this entire discourse and his basic message in all of his preaching, the gospel that he preached. He might not have used the bread metaphor earlier, but it's always been about. I, I need to cleanse you by my blood. I need to save you spiritually. And that particular gospel preaching, the reason why he ultimately came, just did not square with the Jewish idea of Messiah. So why did they dispute? They rejected his testimony once more here. I don't want to hear this garbage from him. They wanted a physical provider, a physical conqueror, not one who would sacrifice his flesh and blood for their sins or nourish them spiritually. That's not what the Jews then wanted, and it's not what they want today. So in, in the minds of the Jews that are present in the synagogue, Jesus is, is moving further and further and further away from what they want in a Messiah, and this aggravated them. It caused them to dispute. It angered them. I guarantee you, some of them, when Jesus said this, he talked about eating his flesh, whatever. I, I, I just guarantee you there were some there that were probably thinking, I've spent the last year following this guy thinking he was going to meet our physical needs and destroy the Romans as our Messiah, and now he's talking about dying so I can live spiritually? What a joke! What a waste of my time! Guarantee you there were people in there thinking that. This guy isn't our Messiah because his message doesn't square with what we believe Messiah is supposed to do. How often that happens in our day and age when they start to, oh yeah, I like Jesus, he's really great. And then they start hearing his message, I don't like Jesus, I don't really like his message because it doesn't square with my version of Jesus or what I think the truth should be. And ah, da, 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 da. People do it all the time. They hear him preach and that's it. They don't like him anymore. He's not the rabbi anymore, now he's this man. So the dispute had to do with some of Jesus' teaching, but in the broader sense, it was, we don't like His message and His version of our Messiah. We reject you. That's what they're doing. Now, if you turn to John chapter 19, you will see the moment where the Jews' frustration with Jesus reaches its zenith, and they respond with unmitigated ferocity and anger. After being whipped nearly to death by Pilate's soldiers, Jesus is brought down to Gabbatha, the judgment seat, and presented before the people. Pilate thought, well, we whipped him within an inch of his life. If we present him all slaughtered and beaten up, maybe the Jews will say, that's enough, turn him loose. That's what he was hoping would happen. And he takes Jesus down, who's completely annihilated, just whipped all up, crown of thorns, the whole works, can't even recognize him, it says in Scripture. He puts Jesus before the Jewish people, hoping that they would say, okay, that's disgusting, that's enough. And what did they do? Pilate's plan failed. 
Instead of calling for his release, the Jews cried, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Verse 15 of John 19. That was the culmination. But it started, it really, the turning point is the synagogue discourse. And then it just kind of keeps building, and they reject him several more times at the temple. And then the ultimate example of their rejection and hatred against him, we see in John 19 at Gabbatha. So this dispute is going on in the synagogue, and they're not arguing against each other. They're arguing with each other against the absurdity of Jesus' claims. How can this man say this? How can, he, how can he teach us these things? This is ridiculous. He can't be our Messiah. These are the things that they're saying. I've wasted a whole year of my life. I mean, that's conjecture, but I think that's what was going on. But we know that they had a problem with his words. And what is Jesus doing while they're spinning themselves out? He totally ignores the dispute in the synagogue. Just, they're just, he's just like going, okay. And what does he do? He begins to bore down on this subject. He turns the the heat up on 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 the stove. He doesn't back off from the point that he's trying to make here. He begins to further exposit it while they're arguing, while they're disputing. We looked at verse 53, but I have to say, and I already kind of alluded to it earlier, pointed to it, verse 53 has to be one of the most misunderstood, misinterpreted, misapplied verses in the entire Bible, easily. Look at 53 with me. Here's Jesus' response in the midst of their dispute. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, there's the double importance, the double emphatic. What he's about to say is highly, highly, doubly important. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. I'll tell you what, I'm kind of tempted if I start pushing it in a message or I'm, I'm interacting with somebody and, and I, I start to get a little kickback against it and, and, you know, they start disputing or he disputes against me. Where I tend to back off a little bit. Jesus does the opposite here. He cranks up the heat. He's like spinal tap. He's got 11 on his volume knob. He just rips it. He just cranks it up, reiterates what he said and, 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 and strengthens it and even puts that, that claim on the end that if you don't do what I'm instructing you to do, you have no life in you. Now, let me begin with my commentary on this verse by saying very clearly to you that we are not to take Jesus' words literally. There is a literal truth here, but we're not to take what he has said absolutely literal in terms of flesh and eating and that. And this is where the mistake is made by many others. They take what he said here completely literally, and it's a mistake to do that. I'm going to give you some reasons why we're not to take this literally. First, throughout the synagogue discourse, Jesus has been using physical examples to communicate spiritual truths. He's been using metaphorical examples to communicate spiritual truths. He's done that through the entire sermon in John 6. Physical example. Jesus called himself bread. Actually, he called himself three types of bread to be precise, right? Bread of God, the bread of life and the living bread. He referred to himself as bread in three different ways. Are we supposed to take him literally? Is he a loaf of bread? If you take 
53 literally, then you must take all the other things that he said literally. My question to, to those who take it literally, is Jesus literal bread? Is he three types of bread? No, he's a person. He's not bread. Spiritual truth, though, right? So the physical example is he calls himself bread. Spiritual truth. As bread satisfies the physical body, Jesus satisfies the spiritual body, the soul. You see how he uses a physical example, a metaphor, to explain a spiritual truth? Remember, they're there and they're hungry. They want food. Of course, he plays off of that. They want bread and fish. He calls himself bread and then parallels it with his soul Saving, satisfying spiritual nourishment. That's an example here in this sermon on how he uses a physical to explain the spiritual. And we see the exact same technique employed throughout John's gospel and throughout Scripture. Physical example, John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God. Are we supposed to take John literally? Is Jesus a lamb? Well, yeah, he said it. Uh, no. No, he's not a lamb. He's a person. He's not an animal. He's not a barn animal. He is a person, right? We would all agree. He's not a literal lamb. Spiritual truth, right? Here's the spiritual truth behind the physical example that John the Baptist made. As lambs were sacrificed at the temple regularly as a temporary propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus was sacrificed at the cross once for the sins of the world. There's your spiritual parallel. Jesus is like a lamb, but his atonement is forever, not temporary like the lambs that were actually slaughtered at the temple. That's a physical example and giving way to a spiritual truth. Another physical example. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus called himself the light of the world. Are we supposed to take him literally? Is Jesus a big oil lamp? No, he's not a big oil lamp. He is a person, not an oil lamp. Spiritual truth, as an oil lamp brings light into a room, Jesus brings the light of God's truth, the light of God's revelation into the world. There's the spiritual example drawn from that metaphor. Another one, physical example. In John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus called himself the door, not the doors, like the 60s rock band, the door, not Jim Morrison. He calls himself the door. Are we supposed to take him literally? Is Jesus a door? No, he's not a door. He's a person. Spiritual truth. As sheep enter a pasture through a door, Jesus' people enter heaven through him. Physical example, spiritual truth. In fact, each of these physical examples or metaphors was given to communicate spiritual truths. Now listen, the same rule applies in verse 53. Jesus gave a physical example to communicate a spiritual truth. Second reason. I touched on this one earlier. This is why we're not to take, second reason why we're not to take Jesus' words literally here. A literal eating and drinking of Jesus' flesh and blood would have been utterly revolting to all Jews and contradictory to an often repeated precept of their law. Cannibalism was totally and absolutely, unequivocally prohibited. Under Jewish law, you could not eat people. 
I'm hoping that applies everywhere, but I know in some small village islands it doesn't. It was prohibited. Now, Jesus knew this, and He would not have promoted anything that violated the very laws He came to obey and fulfill. You can't take it literally for that reason there. That's the second reason. You can't take it literal because it's not about cannibalism. It can't be. Third, a literal eating and drinking of Jesus' flesh and blood adds a human work to salvation. Right? Because he said, unless you eat and drink my flesh, you have no life in you. Life means salvation, eternal life. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, not by grace through faith, plus communion, or plus the Catholic version of communion called transubstantiation, where the bread and wine are allegedly transformed into the literal flesh and blood of Jesus. The truth is, Jesus wasn't even pointing to or referring to communion in this passage. Some say, well, look, he established communion, that sacrament in John 6. No, he didn't. He established it at the Last Supper. What has he been talking about in John 6? The entire time, the synagogue discourse is entirely about eternal life, salvation from beginning, verse 27, and then how it is obtained through repentance and faith in verse 35. That's the gist of this discourse. That's it. And guess what? Communion has nothing to do with salvation. And that's why Jesus did not introduce it here. Jesus would not introduce a sacrament that is necessary to our salvation. If He did that, He would be contradicting the rest of Scripture. He would be contradicting Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. Now, I will admit that we see an allusion to the sacrament here, right? He's talking about flesh and blood, and we realize that in communion, the elements represent they're a memorial to that, but they represent the flesh. So there's an allusion to it here. But Jesus is by no means saying that communion is necessary, necessary to our salvation, nor is He introducing the subject here. He's not establishing it here. As I said, it wasn't officially established until later at the Last Supper. Matthew 26, 17 through 25, and Mark 14, 12 through 21, Luke 22, 7 through 13, and John 13, 1 through 30. There is where the sacrament is truly introduced. No illusion. It is clearly uh, promoted and, 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 and talked about by Jesus and established, and it's ratified by His blood when He died. There's three reasons why we're not to take His word seriously. His uh, examples here, uh, not seriously, but um, literally. Lastly, the fourth reason why we're not supposed to take Jesus' words literally is because doing so would involve most blasphemous and profane consequences. It would shut out of heaven every Old Testament believer because none of them participated in communion. They're out. They don't go to heaven. Abraham's not there. Moses isn't there. Joshua isn't there. Jacob's not there. None of those guys. None of those. Job, none of them. None of them. They're out. Why? Because they didn't celebrate. They didn't participate in communion or transubstantiation. Not only would it shut out the Old Testament saints, it would shut out of heaven all of the New Testament believers who did not participate in communion. John the Baptist, one of the godliest men who's ever lived. The penitent thief on the cross 
the one whom Jesus said, you will be with me in paradise today, but make sure you take communion before you die. Actually, he didn't say that, did he? You see where I'm going with this. And guess what? Not only would it shut out the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints, it would shut out all other saints who did not, and for whatever reason cannot, participate in communion. That's big trouble. Jesus was not pointing to communion, nor did He establish, as many believe, transubstantiation here in this text. He was pointing to something, but it wasn't communion. What was He pointing to? The answer is in verse 4. What does verse 4 say? Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Jesus was pointing to the Passover. The Passover is a yearly celebration and feast that commemorates Israel's deliverance from Egyptian slavery. Exodus chapters 11 and 12 describe the event that became known as Passover. God unleashed nine devastating plagues on Egypt, a a river of blood, frogs, fiery hail, uh, locusts galore, just insects everywhere and etc. Just unleashed these plagues on Egypt. It was horrible for the Egyptians. The tenth and final plague would be the most devastating of all and lead Pharaoh to set God's people free. What was the tenth and final plague? The striking down of all the firstborn of Egypt. It's one thing to have to deal with insects or to have to find a new source for water and have to deal with frogs and all that. That's pretty nasty. But when your firstborn children and cattle are killed in an evening, that's quite another. That is the tenth plague. In Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 27, God gave life-saving instructions to His people prior to the tenth plague. If they followed His instructions, they would not lose their firstborn children and livestock. On the 14th day of that month, they were to take a year-old lamb with no blemishes, kill it, spread its blood on their lentils, that's the upper part of the door, and the doorposts, the side. They were, after they spread the blood, they were to roast the entire animal on an open fire, all of it, the innards and all, and eat it for supper. And they had some other things that they mixed in with that dinner, bitter herbs and things. At midnight of that evening, or early that morning, at midnight, God would come into the city and He would literally inspect every house. The houses that had the lamb's blood on the lintels and doorposts, He passed over. The houses that did not have the lamb's blood above and on the sides of the doors, He struck down the firstborn. That's the Passover. The Pharaoh lost his firstborn early that morning, which caused him to change his mind about the Israelites. Of course, he flipped on that later after they left. But that initial blast and him losing his child and those livestock, he releases the Jewish people to Moses, and Moses begins to lead them out of Egypt toward the promised land into the wilderness. And on that day, when God gave the instructions on how the Israelites could stay alive, paint the blood, do what you're supposed to do, When God gave them those instructions, He also commanded that from that day forward, they were to hold a yearly feast, a yearly celebration that commemorated this incredible event, and it became known as Passover. Now, the Passover is even more significant 
because it foreshadowed the coming of Messiah and the spiritual and physical deliverance he would bring to the world, people from every tribe and tongue. In verse 53, Jesus points to the Passover, which was at hand, and he employs the physical example to spiritual truth technique. Physical example in the Passover, and this would have been so fresh in the Jewish mind here because the feast was upon them now. It was during the feast. Physical example, in the Passover, God provided physical deliverance for the Israelites through the flesh and blood of lambs. To experience this deliverance, the people, the Jewish people, had to obey God's instructions. Kill, spread, and eat. If they obeyed, death would not come into their homes. Spiritual truth. Here's the parallel Jesus is making. In the crucifixion, he just talked about giving his flesh up on the cross in verse 51. Yeah, in verse 51. In the crucifixion, God provided spiritual deliverance for the world, people from every tribe and tongue, through the flesh and blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. There is your parallel. To experience this deliverance, what? We must obey Jesus' instructions. Eat his flesh and drink his blood, which mean believe in his sacrifice for your sins. If we disobey his instructions, if we do not believe in his sacrifice, the destruction of his flesh and the pouring out of his blood for our sins, we have no life in us. In other words, we will not be delivered from our sins, nor will we experience eternal life. J.C. Ryle wrote, If a man's soul does not lay hold by faith on Christ's sacrifice of his body and blood as the only hope of his salvation, he has no title to or part in eternal life. So, eating is a metaphor for believing. Don't take it literally. Eating is a metaphor for believing. What are we supposed to believe? That Jesus sacrificed His flesh and blood on the cross for our sins. That's what you are to believe. That's how you literally eat by faith the flesh and blood. It's a spiritual feeding, not a physical feeding. We feed on Him by faith when we put our trust in what He has done at the cross for us, and obviously through the resurrection as well. This is precisely what Jesus meant in verse 53. Nothing more, nothing less. It has nothing to do with communion, nothing to do with transubstantiation. If Jesus meant for us to take His words literally, then we would have to find a way to literally eat His flesh and drink His blood if we want eternal life. Now all of a sudden, transubstantiation starts to make some sense. But now you've got salvation by grace through faith plus communion. You add anything to grace and faith. You've left the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're now in false religion. The Bible does not teach that salvation is by grace through
through faith plus communion. The Bible does not teach that salvation is by grace through faith plus baptism, which others believe. The Bible teaches very clearly that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in accordance with Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Communion is not in the sequence. When Jesus talks about salvation in the, in, in, in the Gospels and, and when Paul and the other writers talk about it, they don't, communion is never injected into the mix. It's not part of the golden chain. It's not part of soteriology, the science of, of salvation. It doesn't have anything to do with it. And neither does baptism. You take his words literally, you have just left the gospel. You take his words literally, you make Jesus out to be a liar. Now you're the blasphemer. In verses 54 through 58, Jesus made six promises to those who eat his flesh and drink his blood What does that mean? To those who believe in His sacrifice for their sins. Look at 54 through 58 with me. I'll read the section, then I'll identify them for you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. And 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven. I imagine he's pointing at himself again. Not like the bread the fathers ate. He's referring to the manna and died. He says, whoever feeds on this bread, pointing to himself, will live forever. So in verse 53, he gives the negative. If you don't feed on it, you have no life in you. In 54 through 58, he gives the positive. If you do it, here's the result. Here are the blessings. Here are the promises. Now let's identify these promises that are listed here. In verse 54a, Jesus kind of sets the stage by saying, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, dot, 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 number one, will have eternal life. Verse 54b, he literally says, has eternal life. Eternal life means salvation. It means eternal relationship with the Godhead. Not just heaven and and golden streets and all that. It really means to know God in His full love and grace forever and ever and ever and to never, ever, ever taste His wrath and justice. If If you eat my flesh and drink my blood, if you believe that I was sacrificed on the cross for your sins, you will have eternal life. That's what He says. Number two... If you do that, you will be raised by me, raised by Jesus. That's resurrection. Verse 54c, I will raise him up on the last day. This happens, the last day happens on the return of the Lord, the second advent, when he comes back into the world. This is where 
we will see and experience physical deliverance from all, his, all our adversaries and from his adversaries, delivered from the Antichrist and all of that stuff that's going on. We will receive these new bodies, these resurrection bodies that aren't plagued by cancers and sicknesses and illnesses or sin or anything else. If you, if you eat and drink, if you come to me and believe, isn't that what he said in verse 35? You will be raised up on the last day. You will be resurrected by me into a glorified body that has special abilities. It'll be fashioned for everlasting worship, not everlasting punishment. Three, if you eat and drink, if you come and believe in me and my sacrifice for your sins, you will be spiritually satisfied because my flesh and blood are true food. Verse 55, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. They are, his flesh is the best food. His his flesh is the best drink because only it can save and satisfy and nourish our souls. And only it can take us from grace to glory. I think what he's saying here is that my, my, my flesh is true food. It's not like manna, which only has a physical impact on you. It, has, it is my flesh. It has a spiritual impact. It feeds your soul. And he's saying the same thing about his blood. To take my blood and to receive my blood satisfies your spiritual thirst. How do we partake? Faith. For if we feed on his flesh, drink his blood, believe in his sacrifice on the cross for our sins... We will abide in Jesus, and Jesus will abide in the believer. Verse 56b, abides in me and I in him. What does abide mean? This refers to the union that the believer has with Christ. We are in Christ. We have this spiritual union, which will become physical at some point. And in some ways it applies now, but it's difficult to get our minds around that. But we have right now at this very moment a spiritual union with Him. We are in Him and we are safe and we are cared for and our souls are secure. He mediates for us as our high priest. We have union with Christ outside of faith in His salvation by grace. We don't have union with Him. We are actually at war with Him, even though we don't realize that. We are enemies of God, nothing but disunity. But if we believe in His sacrifice for our sins, if we put our trust in Him, if we repent and turn away from our you know, our our self-attempts to become righteous and earn our way, we turn away from that and trust entirely in Him. There is an abiding that happens. There is a union that occurs. It's just a beautiful union. I don't know about you, but there are times where, where you don't have people around you and you feel so lonely and all that, but as a believer, you have Christ. You have the Holy Spirit. 
The union remains even in our darkest, most lonely times. The abiding means to exist perpetually in Christ. And not just us in Him, but Him in us through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the seal of our inheritance and salvation. How do you know if you're a saved person? You have the Holy Spirit. You know that He's in you. You know that He's he's gently correcting and loving and instructing and directing you and, and conforming you to the image of Christ. He works in conjunction with with your conscience to convict you of sin in these things. You know He's there. You have spiritual gifts that He's brought into your life. This is how you know. And then, of course, if the Spirit is in you, then you're going to bear the fruits of the Spirit. The abiding is so important. By faith, we abide and He in us. Five, if we partake of His flesh and blood if we believe in His sacrifice for our sins. We live because of Jesus. Verse 57, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Grace by faith in Christ through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, literally brings us to life. We're not dead in our trespasses and sins anymore. Ephesians 2.1. That's what we were before the Holy Spirit came and performed the miracle of regeneration, illumination, those things. And, and we believed at that moment. We were dead. And now we're not dead. We live because the Father lives. We live because Christ lives. Christ is ascended. He is seated at the right hand of God. He lives and breathes. He has a human flesh and blood body that still bears the scars of the cross. He is alive. And because He is alive, we are alive. But if you do not believe, you are dead. You walk around. You breathe. But your soul, your spirit is flatlined a corpse but by grace through faith, applied through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. We live because the Father who lives sent the Son who lives. We participate or partake of the Son by faith. We also live. This is life now. I hate it when preachers talk about eternal life and they just, it's just this projection of what's going to happen. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's little cherubs plucking harps on floating clouds and it's heaven and it's just golden streets and mansions. Well, that's all wonderful except for the weird cherub part. That's wonderful, but, but we're talking about life now. Life now. We live now. Christ said Himself He came to give us the abundant Life, not just eternal life. We have life now. We live in Him now, not just later. I mean, heaven is glorious. It's wonderful. It's an inheritance. I can't wait. Sometimes I wish I'd go there now. Maybe I need to get more life insurance. But we live now. We live now. And some Christians fail to realize this. 
They, they don't live now. They don't walk in obedience. They, they, they don't live and walk in joy in the security, in purpose that Christ has bestowed upon them and given them. They don't live as adopted children. They live as the pagans around them. We have life now. Live it. Jesus came living life to its fullest. Why aren't we living life to God's fullest glory? Six, if we eat His flesh and drink His blood, if we believe in His sacrifice on the cross for our sins, we will live forever. Verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. I love five and six, life now and life for eternity. Number six is eternal life. That's precisely what he talks about in 58. He has talked about that subject many, many, many times in the synagogue discourse. I should warn you, there is a life to be lived apart from Christ, but it's not eternal life in eternal bliss, joy, and satisfaction in the presence of God who is most beautiful. It is a life of torment where we will pay for our sin debt for all eternity. This is why Jesus said, if you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood, there is no life in you. You don't have eternal life. You have eternal death. In verse 59, we're just wrapping up, John concluded his account of this, really one of the best sermons I've ever looked at and studied, but of the synagogue discourse, he concludes it with a brief statement that shows where it took place. And I think this is significant. Verse 59, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. John is a stickler for details. He likes to include geographical locations where these things, some of these things took place. He doesn't record all of them, but he likes to insert them in the, in the narrative. He likes us to know where and when. But I don't think that's his entire point here. You drop down to verse 66. Miles mentioned this the other day. It's pretty interesting that it's chapter 6, verse 66. 666. If you drop down to verse 66, you will see that many of Jesus' disciples, that's the Jewish people that were following Jesus for over a year, you will see that they turned back and no longer walked with Him after hearing the synagogue discourse and other statements He made in verses 61 through 65. They left. And I think John recorded the location in verse 59 to document for historical purpose purposes when and where the Jewish people as a whole first rejected their Messiah. It almost stands as a record against them. This is the turning point in his ministry. For the most part, he's had a lot of 
not just interest in Him, but support by many people. And then He preaches this message. And that's it. Some have had it with Him. He's not the Messiah I imagined. He keeps saying that He's come to lay down His life so that I could live spiritually. Obviously, He doesn't understand that I live spiritually because I obey God's laws perfectly. I have earned my righteousness. That's the mindset. You mean to tell me that I'll have to yield to you and accept your flesh and blood sacrifice on the cross for me to live spiritually? How dare you tell me that? I am of the seed of Abraham. You know not what you speak. That's the attitude. This is the turning point. As I said earlier, there are other points where the rejection continues in the temple several times and then ultimately at Gabbatha. And then even after he's resurrected, the Pharisees and Romans work together to conspire to cook up a story that his body was stolen. 2,000 years later, the Jews are in the same position. In fact, they indoctrinate their children from the youngest age to reject Jesus, the deceiver. They're the ones that are deceived. It's tragic. It's sad. I had this thought, and I'd never thought about it before, but hell itself is chock full of Jews. That's sad. It's sad that anyone would be there. But it's really sad when God's quote-unquote people are there because they weren't willing to accept the testimony of their own Messiah and submit and yield to Him. Yeah, I know God has a part in it. I know He's sovereign. How those things work together is a mystery to me, but they do. It's a tragedy. Know this. The Israelite, the Jewish rejection of Jesus first occurred as a whole at Capernaum. That's why the historical reference is there. Closing. What a sour note, huh, to end on. Thanks, John. 59, it's got to be there. To me, it's sobering. Causes me to think. Closing statements. I'm just going to ask some questions. Have you fed on the flesh and blood of Jesus? Have you believed in His sacrifice for your sins? Have you? If so, His promises in verses 54 through 58 are yours. You have life and eternal life and spiritual satisfaction by His true body and blood. It's all yours, all of it. All of the promises in Scripture are yours. Not just these that we see here in these four or five verses. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, the the blessings the believer receives through Christ, those promises are yours. All of the promises of Scripture are yours in Christ. 
They belong to you and nothing, and no one can take them from you. If you have not fed on the flesh and blood of Jesus, if you have not believed in his sacrifice for your sins, you have no life in you. You have no eternal life. You are dead in your sins. You will face judgment and pay for your sins through everlasting, eternal suffering. The good news is the invitation Jesus made to the Jews at the synagogue nearly 2,000 years ago is also for you. He listed these promises in the form of an invitation. Knowing full well what they thought about him, he still invites them to life. And he does the same thing today. He won't continue to do this. Be a time where that period of grace ends. Today, just like then, Jesus invites you to come to his supper table and partake of his flesh and blood by believing in his sacrifice for your sins. Put your full trust in him alone for your salvation, and his promises will be yours. As we enter communion, I'd like to quote Carl Truman, who authored the book we've been reading in our men's group. This will be familiar to the guys that are here that are in the group. Uh, the book is from the Five Solas series by Zonervan, and the book is called Grace Alone. I would suggest that every believer read this book, even though it's a little historical and complex in some places, but that hopefully will ignite a dialogue, a conversation, but believers should read this book so they can understand what grace alone means. Every believer should read it. Here is what he wrote. Eating and drinking the elements reminds us of Christ's work on our behalf, His sacrificial death for our sins. And as the bread and juice or wine nourish the human body, so Christ's body and blood nourish the human soul. You see, that's what communion is all about. This is what the synagogue discourse is all about. The bread, the flesh, the blood are metaphors for the soul-saving and satisfying work of Jesus Christ. That's what this discourse is all about. And that's what communion reflects. After you retrieve the bread and juice and sit down, spend some time in prayer confessing your sins. When you open your eyes and look at the bread and juice, envision the cross and the broken body and blood of Jesus. Don't just see bread and juice. See the cross, see His broken body, see His blood pouring out of His broken body for you. And say to yourself, He alone can save and satisfy my soul. And you take those elements in remembrance of what He did for you as a memorial to Him. And you give thanks to the Lord for His work. And then commit yourself to Jesus 
I like how Steve Lawson recently summarized the Christian life. If you've ever wondered what the Christian life is supposed to be like or how you're supposed to be living as a Christian, here you go. He wrote this, and I'm ending with this. Firstly, the Christian believes in Jesus. We believe in Him. Our faith is in Him and no one else in the person and finished work of Jesus, in the cross work, in the resurrection work of Jesus. We believe in Jesus. We adore Jesus. We worship Jesus. We follow Jesus. We imitate Jesus. We trust Jesus. We love Jesus. We obey Jesus. We serve Jesus. We proclaim Jesus. Jesus, and we glorify Jesus. That is what our life is to look like. Amen.